podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. So on a previous episode, you heard us do a top 10 of pre-war, pre-Second World War, uh, pre-war Grand Prix cars. And today, as you'll have seen in the title, we talk about the drivers. And our man for our top 10s is our chief editor, Kevin Turner. So, Kev, we'll finish off this little series that we've done, these two extra episodes, looking pre-war. The cars, I get one thing, but the drivers, this seems like a bigger challenge, am I right? This has been spectacularly difficult. <laughs> it's taken. This has probably taken me longer than pretty much any other list. I mean, the the shortlist for the cars. I, I think I did eleven, uh, uh, from which there were the ten. And you've got to decide the order uh, and make and a the, good argument. Exactly. For each one. And it, so it was. I kind of had a good idea of where I was going with that from the start. Whereas this, I the shortlist was probably I don't know fifteen straight away. And then as I did more research, I <laughs> added more names in, and I think, oh my goodness, this is getting a bit much so yeah this this took a long time and it's really difficult because obviously comparing drivers across different eras as we've said before in lots of the other lists is always challenging but this is particularly so partly because motor racing changed so much during the period but also because like we said in the car one the data you've got you know in the early days and we're doing 1906 to 1939 the first part of that era it's one or two races a year and then by the end you've got a season that looks more closer to what you'd be familiar with now I mean there were lots of non-championship races and only a handful of championship ones but the number of races was a bit more familiar so you know how do you compare someone that maybe only did half a dozen Grand Prix but won two of them to someone who then was racing in dozens of Grand Prix in the 30s so and of course the level of competition changed so yeah it's uh it's been a it's been a challenge. So I'm 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 sure I'll come back to this ten in a few months. Someone go, oh, I should have done this. <laughs> and what kind of characters are we talking about uh, generally from the era? So, I mean, a lot of them are. I mean, racing drivers are extraordinary anyway, aren't they? But I think from this period, especially the early part, you know, they're pioneers, they're innovators. A lot of them are their own sort of designers or mechanics or whatever because they're just fascinated by this new technology and want to be involved with it. Um, uh, they're kind of swashbuckling, so. You know, we've sometimes said about post-war Grand Prix drivers, oh, you know, if they'd been born in an earlier era, they'd have been a fighter pilot. Well, some of these people were. Some yeah. of these were fighter pilots or special agents or, you know, fascinating, the sort of people that would find where the action was, whether it was with wings, wheels or something else, you know, those kind of swashbuckling type characters, really. There's the Joe Saywood book about the uh, British racing drivers who, during the Second World War, were then called up to, to go do secret secret operations. They're these kind of personalities. So- yeah, exactly. Ha- prepared to take a risk and, uh, and risks uh, mu- with much higher stakes than we would think of now in terms of motor racing. Anyway. Yeah. All right, let's get into it. Uh, your top 10 pre-war Grand Prix drivers, number 10. So number 10 is Robert Benoit. So a uh, Frenchman, as you can probably imagine, and his main uh, years in, in Grand Prix racing were 1924 to 29. This is a tricky one. I mean, we've always... Uh, We've always talked about the number 10 slot, don't we? So I haven't got anyone to argue with uh, <laughs> yeah. on this occasion. So I'll argue. I have actually had some feedback already to the, the articles that have gone up online. So thanks very much for that and in the magazine. Um, so, yeah, a few names that, that could have made it. I think in terms of ability, Pietro Bordino could have made it in. He was kind of a Max Verstappen-style driver in the 20s. Um, but he didn't get the results. You know, cars in those days weren't as reliable. And unfortunately, he was he was killed in a race. Uh, Guy Moll. Um, he was fantastically fast and he won the Monaco Grand Prix in 1934. He was the rising star. 
Uh, and then he was killed that later that year. So he, they neither of them really had enough records for me to just a little bit like Stefan Beloff. There's not quite enough to sort of stick them in the list. Whereas Benoit did have, you know, he, he would have been 1927 world champion. He was the Delage lead driver in, 19, you know, in that season, 1927, when they won the manufacturers championship. There wasn't a drivers title, but he would have won it because he won four of the five races. Um, uh, he he kind of when Delage, when Delage basically spent too much money on their car. Uh, which made the, made my other list. Um, he he kind of didn't immediately have a drive, but he ended up um, doing quite a lot for Bugatti. He actually raced sporadically. He actually became team manager at one stage. So yeah, he just sort of s- scrapes into the list on that uh, on the twenty seven season, and, and for just being highly regarded by his peers, that was quite a big factor in this list actually. Okay. Because uh, re- reading not just journalists and writers, but also the other drivers, mm. what they said about. Uh, drive, their their peers and, and Benoit came out very well with that so I wasn't going to argue To put your list together what kind of research and what kind of resources have been available to you to, to go and you know educate yourself as, on, on enough to put a list together Yeah so obviously there are fewer people to speak to about this that have first hand uh, you know even some of the you know, people like you know, Ian Titchmarsh spoke to uh, you know Damien Smith we've had on as a guest you know Doug Nye historian you know, even those guys haven't witnessed these drivers in action so um, reports of the time, um, books, quite a lot of books. So one of the key ones that I enjoy, which I'd recommend anyone looking up, is Rudolf Caracciolo's A Racing Driver's World. I've got it in front of me at the moment. Yep. Um, and then you, you find what the drivers are saying about other drivers, and, and we'll come to the to people he talks about later on. So it's it's piecing together. Obviously, you look at records as well, mm. but we know that statistics can lie. <laughs> yes, so yes. it's factoring that in. So it's it's quite a difficult. It's always a difficult balancing process. But this was was particularly difficult because of the you know some of these drivers were operating more than a hundred years ago. So you're pro- properly in historian mode as opposed to motorsport journalism mode. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that was number ten. Let's move on to number nine. So number number nine. Luigi Fagioli, one of the most tempestuous characters in Grand Prix history. He was almost, I think, a cliche sort of fiery Italian, uh, but he was he was quick. So uh, he sort of became established in the uh, early 1930s um, with well, he actually kind of moved around a little bit, but he um, he was good with Alfa Romeo in 32. Um, previous to that, I think he'd uh, been quite a force with Maserati. And basically, he got himself into the point where at the end of 1933, when Mercedes-Benz were coming back into Grand Prix racing, they needed the lead driver, which normally would have been Rudolf Caracciola, but he was right. still severely injured from his crash at Monaco. Yep. Manfred von, Bra- von Brauchitsch was still kind of a you know, inexperienced, unproven talent. So Alfred Neubauer signed Fagioli to be the lead driver's established Grand Prix winner. And almost immediately they fell out. <laughs> uh, because obviously you can imagine that, you know, the Mercedes team was v- very tightly controlled. You know, yeah. on, their, on occasions they did sort of decide on the finishing order or at the very least get the drivers to hold position. Fagioli didn't like that at all. So there were a couple of times, I think uh, there's the Eiffel Reading on the debut of the Dolly 25 when he was ordered to finish second to Von Hitch and he just decided to park the car. I'd rather not finish wow. than finish second to this guy. Um, so he was very fiery. There was quite, when Caracciola got up to speed in 1935, they quite often hang the uh, hang the sort of slow you know, hold position boards. Caracciola would need Fagioli second. Fagioli would just ignore it and overtake him. Caracciola got wise to this in the end and just used to ignore the team orders as well. So they both carried on just driving <laughs> flat out. Uh, so he, I mean, he did win races. So he did win races for them in 1934. Um, and he was a top 
Grand Prix driver. But in the end, he, yeah, perhaps he was always going to be up against it, given Neubauer's relationship with Cracciola and Cracciola's ability. But he kind of faded away sort of from 35 onwards. Right. Um, did he come back after the war and race again? He did. So uh, I've got I've got to mention the attack with the hammer first. I mean, when okay. he joined Auto Union, he, he at the Tripoli Grand Prix in 1937, he allegedly attacked Caracciola with a hammer and a knife. Wow. This so, guy was... <laughs> So he was properly, Incredible. properly, yeah, when you think of the drivers just saying something a bit naughty to the press, it puts it into a perspective, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? So, but yeah, no, he was, I think he was, was past his best by then. Um, but he did, he did come back um, with the Alfa Romeo team. Um, so I think he's the oldest, he's the oldest driver to win a World Championship Grand Prix, but that's really only because he had his car over to, to Fangio, then came through to win uh, the French Grand Prix. But he was one of the three Fs, Fangio, Freedom, Fagioli and Alfa Romeo. Uh, when the world championship began, but he was very much by then. He was, the, you know, he was, an, you know, he was a much older, older man. He was the third of the three. But um, I didn't want that to detract from the fact that I think he was quick. But the reason he's not high is just too much baggage. Wait, I mean, if you were mm. if you were a team manager, would you want to sign someone like that? That sounds well, like a lot of hard work. If we asked our Italian colleagues in terms of you know uh, great Italian racing drivers that that they they hold in high regard, is it would they name him as one? I think he would. He don't think he'd be in the first okay. tier. I don't think okay, he'd be in the first tier, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. But he could hold his own against the the best of the era. Um, I just don't think he was consistent enough, probably because he was a bit too volatile. Okay. All right. Let's move on. Number eight. So another Italian, but different character altogether. Felice Nazaro. Yep. Uh, now he. The reason there are a few contemporaries of his uh, that could have made this list, but Nazaro gets on here because he kind of spans different eras so he was he was in the very first French Grand Prix in 1906 uh, and he was still capable of winning the French Grand Prix in 1922 now if you think that in 1907 he became the first person to win three big races in one year which sounds ridiculous now but there were only basically three (laughs) races so he he won the French Grand Prix the Kaiser Price uh, and the Targa Florio uh, and to win the the French Grand Prix he had a 16.3 litre Fiat wow so that's 1907 he uh, uh, he was then a front runner in the following year's French Grand Prix uh, and third in in the American Grand Prix. Again, there are only a couple of races. He left, set up his own mark, won the Targa Florio again in his own car. Quite cool. That's very cool. Uh, and then he was and he'd kind of not driven much. Um, obviously, there was the First World War. And he'd not done a lot of driving, and Fiat got him back for 1922. Uh, when, as we discussed before, the regulations by then are two liter racing car so yeah. completely different type of animal to what he'd been used to and as we as we've seen with the great drivers in later eras a rule change doesn't stop them you know uh and he he yeah. won the he won the french grand prix in 1922 in the fiat 804 um and was still still pretty competitive uh towards the end of his career and then he he retired um he retired when fiat withdrew as we said in the cars uh the cars mm. podcast fiat got fed up with being people being poached but Nazaro was not someone who was ever poached. He was a long-time Fiat guy, obviously, in between with his own uh, mark. And he hung around, and I think he carried on working in the in the um, experimental roadwork department pretty much all the way up to his death. So he's someone that did manage to survive one of the most dangerous periods in motorsport history and got a surprisingly high number of wins given the relatively few amount of events there were. Wow. Yeah, and that's going to be a, a topic which is a little bit morbid but is a reality of 
what we talk about, which was the risks involved in in racing cars in this era. So here was someone who who died of natural causes of pretty, pretty much yeah. Of old age. Well, we didn't actually mention about Benoit. He then we were talking about mm. buckling heroes. You know, he uh, he won his last race. Uh, Le Mans 24 hours in 1937 and then when the war broke out he became a secret agent to help the French resistance and um, he kept escaping and eventually the Nazis got fed up with it and executed him in 1944 so that's the kind of you know you can make a film about that yeah absolutely All right, number 7 let's move on who's next so number 7 is Herman Lang now I had him up in 4th to start with oh okay because I got bumped he was potentially that good but the reason he falls back is because he is his career is is you know, probably more than anyone else on this list, his racing career is is curtailed by the war, mm. by the Second World War. So he's got a good story. He started off as a Mercedes mechanic, uh, and like some of the, I mean, he had he had been a successful motorcycle racer, but he was given his chance in a test of the W twenty five. I mean, it seems crazy, doesn't it? Yes, you you can go and test this Grand Prix car. Let's see if you're any good. I mean, they had people disappearing through hedges on the Nurburgring and all oh, oh, it's some incredible stories of uh, oh no you that, that guy didn't come back he won't be on the team uh, but Lang didn't do that Lang was Lang was fine so he was kind of became the the um, sort of reserve driver right I suppose you'd call it now while still being mechanic to Luigi Fagioli wow so quite he an was, incredible he worked on the car and then but could like, also drive you it wanna, okay and he, he did, so he didn't really get enough uh, appearances in sort of 1935, 36. But in 1937, with a W125, 650 brake horsepower, you know, mega car, that's when he became a regular. He was very good on fast circuits. Um, so Tripoli Grand Prix was very fast, uh, very fast racetrack. Mm. He won a hat trick. Yep. Uh, he won that race that I mentioned in the previous podcast, 162 mile an hour. Avis Renan. Um, so he was, but but he was he had a few weaknesses at that point. One of which was he wasn't very good in the wet. So he was still the sort of he was an unfinished mm. article, if you like. But then 1939, he really comes into his own. He's that he is the pace setting driver. He overtakes Creatiola as the lead driver at Mercedes, um, and, and he wins. He wins the Belgian Swiss Po Grand Prix, the Eiffel Renan. Uh, and the the winning uh, the Swiss one the Swiss win was in the wet and he beat Caracciolo in the wet and Caracciolo was almost unbeatable in the wet so that shows the level he got to just in time for the war to come and he lost his best years of his career so that's why I had him up in fourth initially was because of right. where he could have got to but if I've got I've got to be consistent with my own scoring and criteria yeah he didn't actually get those results you know thirty nine is his season right uh, okay so he did come back after the one he did win Le Mans but. In terms of for Grand Prix terms, he lost his he lost his best years to the war. And he um, before the war, he was driving that Mercedes Benz W one five four. That's right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he was the. I think he, if you were to associate a driver with a car, which we could we could have done in this process, the W one five four would have been his. Yeah, that was his his car. Although he is the guy that won the my favourite motorsport story in Tripoli in nineteen thirty nine with the Vuitton Mercedes. Uh, which I'm sure I've talked about before. Go on, possibly. remind me. So this is the one where uh, the Italians got fed up of running because the Italians were running the Tripoli Grand Prix, fed up losing Grand Prix, and with a few months to go, announced that that race, which is normally for Grand Prix cars, would be for Voiturettes, which is Formula 2, because yeah. they had Alfa Romeo's and Maseratis mm. and Mercedes and also and you didn't have a car. So I thought, brilliant. So this race will be won by an Italian car. <laughs> Mercedes, in total secrecy, developed two baby Grand Prix cars called the W165, 1500cc supercharged, rocked up, finished one of them on the boat on the way over, rolled them off. There were 31 Italian cars in the race, two German cars, and the Mercedes finished first and second. Wow. Having never raced 
I don't think they'd even been tested. They, uh, <laughs> and they, they were never raced again. Uh, those cars. So there was sort of one hit wonders, and they finished first and second. And Lang was the driver that won that race. Wow. And that, but the just the story of of a young German who gets a job at a Mercedes Benz factory ends up working with the the Grand Prix team, and then they're like, "Do you want to have a go?" Like it's just the stuff of boyhood dreams, isn't it? But, yeah, absolutely. But you know, just a generation or half a generation earlier, that wasn't that unusual. So Christian Lautenschlager, who didn't quite make this list, but won the nineteen oh eight and nineteen fourteen French Grand Prix, he basically did every job there was going at Mercedes. He worked in the factory. He was a mechanic. He did. He, I think he did some test. He did everything. And they went, "Oh, we've got a Grand Prix coming up. Do you want to drive in the you know, Grand Prix car?" Yeah, I'll do that as well. And he won a couple of races. <laughs> you know, so it was it was almost like just a part of a bigger. You know, you work for Mercedes. Mercedes and you will be doing various tasks so the specialism hadn't kicked in yet incredible all right let's get on and driver number six Louis Chiron he's not French right he's monogasque okay so uh yes uh and he was the driver of 1928 so I think there were lots of good Bugatti drivers uh, Rene Dreyfus, Philippe Tonselin. You know, there were lots of drivers that won racing Bugattis, as we mentioned in the previous one. But I think probably Chiron is the one. Um, you know, he was he would have been world champion in 1928. I think he had what I what I discovered while I was uh, uh, looking at looking him up was he has a, a Charles Leclerc like ability not to win his home race. Oh no! It was it was amazing. So uh, <laughs> oh, poor guy. he was uh, in nineteen uh, in nineteen thirty had a fantastic battle with Dreyfus and they broke the lap record. He seemed set to win, and then he had a throttle problem on the last lap and finished second. Uh, and then a few years later, uh, he was leading uh, nine thirty four, I think it was, and the car broke down on the last lap again. He did win it. So right. Leclerc, there is hope. Okay. He did finally win his his Monaco Grand Prix. And Chiron actually is a bit of a Monaco hero because he after his I mean he carried on after the war scored, mm. scored his only world championship podium in the Monaco Grand Prix Brilliant. and then went on to be part of the organisation team at Monaco and the Monte Carlo Rally so yeah. uh, but that's not why that's not why he's on the list you know he was a top uh, top driver very known for his artistry very smooth driver mm. uh, at a time when you didn't really want to take you know take it out of the equipment you know some of these races one of the ones he won with with uh, Akil Varzi was 10 hours you know so you didn't you didn't want to thrash the machinery mm. too hard so he was real, known as a real stylist um, and he also he also sort of held his end up quite well when the German teams uh, and drivers come on strong in the mid thirties. He famously won the 1934 French Grand Prix. He did jump the start. There is footage. I think he's just decided I'm not letting these uh, German cars get. Away. I'm, I'm going now, chat. <laughs> right, I'm um, ready. I'm going now. And in those days, they were like, "That's oh, close enough. Off you go." I mean, yeah, the races the races were so long. A jump start wouldn't really have normally have made much difference. But he just. He just drove flat chat in his Alpha. Stuck in an auto union managed to get to him and then broke down. And none of the other German cars managed to catch him. Uh, and they all broke. So Chiron led an Alpha 1, 2, 3 at the 1934 French Grand Prix, which is probably his most famous drive. But but actually, he, he had plenty of other fine performances. He was third in the Eiffel Red in the following year in an Alpha, uh, uh, beating some of, the, some of the quick German cars, including Luigi Fagioli in the W25. So... Really proper driver, highly regarded by his peers. Um, friends with Rudolf Caraccio, they actually set up a team at one point together. Um, so a real key key figure uh, and did carry on. I mean, he sort of retired and then came back after the Second World War and, and won a few more races as well. So 
he he definitely had to climb into my my top six. And he carried on driving well into his fifties, almost the sixties, uh, his sixties, in terms of even in Grand Prix cars, would get in and do a practice session or something. So yeah, uh, just yeah, just a remarkable yeah, sort of retired and then yeah, came back. But as you say, just just carried on. I mean, he's oh, yeah, wow, just looking at what he did after the Second World War. He won he won the nineteen forty seven French Grand Prix. Uh, he was second at Monaco, obviously, yeah. the following year. And he, yeah, he started 15 world championship races. Wow. So, uh, yeah, a long career. Again, another person that managed a long career and being competitive for a lot of that. Um, he wasn't always in the best kit. He probably was when he had the Bugatti. But the rest of the time, he was quite often outclassed and still managed to pick up results. So maybe not the absolute outright fastest, but, you know, a really polished performer. Well, there's our first five. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get into the top five top 10 uh, Grand Prix pre-war drivers. Back in a sec. Okay, we are here today with our chief editor, Kevin Turner, as we look at the top 10 pre-war Grand Prix drivers. Although some of these uh, did come back after the war ended, what we are looking at is their performance before 1939. And we get into the top five. So, Kev, who have we got next? So, number five is Georges Boileau. And if I had to pick someone on this list to meet, I mean, actually, all of these guys would be (laughs) fascinating to me, I'm sure. He would be up there because he he's the kind of hero type that, that we talked about. So he almost instantly became a hero of France when he won the 1912 French Grand Prix. If you remember from the Cars yes. podcast, that was the race that Peugeot rocked up with. his tiny 7.6, the 7.5 litre <laughs> car against the 14 litre Fiat's, and he won. Uh, and he sort of became a, a hero, And he but he was just... He was just faster than everyone else. He yeah. was the star. So there's not as many races to to really rate him on compared to some of the others on this list. But I think you've also got to rate them within their era. And he was the guy. He was the best driver in the world, I think, for a while. The one guy that might you put up against that was David Bruce Brown, um, who was very good. And he was the Fiat star, but he was killed in 1912. So he wasn't around long enough to have a proper rivalry with Wallow. So I think Wallow was the guy. He led Jules Goes, another potential for this list in a 1 2 in the French Grand Prix in 1913. But funny enough, the reason he makes this list is actually the race he didn't win. The final sort of thing that gets him over the line, gets him as high as fifth, is the 1914 French Grand Prix, which I think is one of the great sporting events in history, not just motorsport. Um, you know, it was an enormous race. 13 teams in a 37 car field. Um, and Mercedes were there with five cars. Uh, it was a seven-hour race, and it was basically. And the Mercedes were very well prepped. All the cliches yeah. that you say about Mercedes probably start in this. This is the sort of first point that that became obvious. Uh, and it was, and it was while on a one, basically a one-man uh, fight against an, uh, the army of Mercedes. Wow. Bearing in mind that that this is mere weeks before the outbreak of the First World War. So tensions are incredibly high between the nations. So you've got a lone French hero (laughs) chased by five Mercedes. Uh, In fact, one of them gets into the lead but breaks down and he leads. He also had the disadvantage of uh, his um, tyres, I think they were Dunlops, he had to change several times. The Continentals on the Mercedes only needed one change. So he was up against these five other cars and he had to make more tyre stops. And the, the accounts of this race by, by people who were there, Sammy Davies, a famous journalist and driver himself, said the way that, yeah, he, he, while I was, dr- was driving in a way that we would recognise now as flat out, which was on an unusual thing. And it was sideways and it was on the edge in a way that the Mercs weren't. The Mercs had probably better handling, but the Peugeot had four-wheel brakes, so that helped him. And he basically, he stayed out front, chased by these Mercedes almost to the very end when the engine on the Peugeot finally broke. 
Oh. But to give you an idea, Go was in the, in the the other Peugeot, finished ten minutes behind the winner. Uh, so Mercedes scored a one, two, three, and, and Boileau was the defeated, defeated oh. hero. But I mean, what an awesome uh, performance that must have been to to witness. Um, and just to kind of underline um, <laughs> the sort of character we're dealing with here, he then during the first of war became an, an aero ace as well, a uh, fighter pilot. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Shot down and killed in 1916. So I think he was only. Let me just double check. Yeah, he was only about 32, I think, when he oh, died. But goodness. I mean, what a lot he packed in. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Um, let's get into number four. Akil Vartsi. Now, he didn't, he started, I, I was aware of him and he, I had him in my 10, but he gradually climbed up more and more. Now, he's, okay. in terms of a driver, he's kind of like, he's the he's the Alain Prost to Tatsuya Valaris out in centre with that sort of smooth, kind of quite calculated approach. Maybe not calculated as Caracciola, but we'll get mm. to that. Um, I mean, they did so. They were so they were rivals on on bikes. They started. To, they went four wheel racing together, yep. and Nouvelari tended to have the edge. And Vasi was the sort of person to just go off and do his own thing, though. Apparently, very rarely smiled. Okay, <laughs> that was a, You find a picture of him. He does. He always looks slightly stern. Took it very <laughs> seriously, I think. Right. But he was one hell of a driver. You know, he, uh, he had this rivalry with with Nouvelari. In nineteen thirty, Nouvelari won the Mille Miglia by. Uh, he turned his lights off at night so that Vasi couldn't see him coming and all sorts of crazy stuff. And then uh, Vasi got his own back by winning the Targa Florio despite his car catching fire at one point. Um, he moved around a bit, so he'd, he'd been successful in an Alpha. Uh, he won in Maseratis. He then joined Bugatti. Um, uh, and that was really the, the wrong time because he, he, he joined them just towards the, the end of their successful period. He did win that 10-hour epic uh, that I mentioned, the French Grand Prix, uh, sharing with Louis Chiron. Um, but he also won one of the great pre-war Grand Prix. In fact, one of the great races, uh, 1933 Monaco Grand Prix, Vasi for Bugatti, Nouvelari in the Alfa Romeo, and they ran basically neck and once Nouvelari had made his way up from fourth on the grid. Mm. That was the first race, by the way, where the grid was set by practice times instead of by ballot, oh. uh, by you know drawing it out of a hat. So a bit of motorsport history there. Uh, and they just fought an incredible duel for the entire distance. And uh, on the final lap, Vasi over-revved his Bugatti engine and it held together. Nouvelari did the same with the Alpha and it blew up. So Vasi, that was pretty much the last big win for a Bugatti. Um, he then joined... Uh, yeah, so he joined the, the Ferrari on Alfa Romeo team. But obviously by then the, the, uh, the, the, the German cars would begin to... You know, get the upper hand. Mm. They came and got the upper hand, but he then joined Auto Union. And I think that people previously said that Bernd Rosemeyer was the only guy that could get his head around the, the funny Auto Unions. I do think Vasi potentially would have done. Um, and he did, you know, he did win races. He was front running, but he unfortunately got addicted uh, to morphine. Oh. Uh, and that completely derailed his career. You know, there were some points where he wouldn't even turn up. And he somehow kind of crept into 1937. Uh, with sort of a part drive with Auto Union, but it, right. it, it didn't really, you know, he was no longer a, he was a shadow of his, his former yeah. self, really, because of the drug addiction. The nice thing about the story is that he did recover from the drug addiction uh, during the Second World War, and he did return to racing. The sad part of it is that he was then killed in an accident during practice for the Swiss Grand Prix. Uh, now, he only had two major accidents in his entire career. You know, he was a very safe pair of hands normally, so very unlucky to be, you know, only two big crashes and one of the ones that, that, that kills you. So incredible driver, big talent, doesn't quite make this top three because his career kind of fell apart. 
Um, he probably could have achieved more. But still, multiple, multiple wins puts him nice and high on this list. Yeah, and Very he won successful. the. Yeah, and he was an Italian champion as well. I probably should have mentioned that before. Yeah. There, there's a kind of a. There's an Italian road racing championship that was kind of the result of major major races that were selected and most of the good drives of this period are italian or german so to be the italian champion yeah was was significant uh, and he won that three times during the 30s when you think you've got people like nuvolari and fagioli and, and and those sorts of drivers you know that's no mean feat so real top driver but with a sort of a slightly tragic latter part of his life and even so even post-war when he passed away even then, helmets weren't mandatory. So some of the drivers were wearing helmets by then, but some of the safety gear was. Yeah, a lot of the drive. Yeah, because I think the car, I think the car crushed him. I think it sort yeah. of fell over on him, um, uh, which does happen, unfortunately, with some of the older cars with a high centre of gravity. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, safety was still was still not really. I mean, that safety wasn't really taken. I, I would say safety wasn't really taken seriously in most motorsport. Uh, places or countries, even after the 55 Le Mans crash, I mean, obviously Switzerland banned it. Yeah. But I don't really think it makes major progress until Jackie Stewart starts pointing things out in the 60s. But uh, he wasn't the only one, to be fair, but he was the figurehead. Wow. Um, so, no, still, still very rudimentary. Okay, let's move on. Who is in third place in our top three? So, the top three for me picked themselves. The, oh, they okay. had to be these three. The order you could argue about, but they had these three had to be in it, I think. Right. So, number three is Bernd Rosemeyer. Yeah. So, incre- another incredible story. Motorcycle rider, um, never driven a racing car before, plopped in the auto union. A P wagon, as it was originally called, actually, right. but the the A type that became the B type and the C, you know, type, C type, mm. um, uh, and yeah, he he was just one of those incredible. I, I don't like, as you know, Martin. I don't like saying <laughs> natural ability because I think that's really lazy shorthand yeah. for things. But if there was such a thing, <laughs> he yeah. would have had it because he just got in and he was absolutely incredible. And he grabbed everyone's attention by very nearly beating Rudolf Cracciola at the nineteen thirty five Alfa Romeo, and so that's at the Nurburgring. Mm. Uh, and bearing in mind that this is basically his first year in racing and it's in a Grand Prix car and he's taken on the best in the world so it's a bit like somebody who's never raced a car before suddenly challenging Max Verstappen for the for the race winning it what who is this guy <laughs> uh, wow so I mean he he was he was fearless he had yeah. lots he had lots of accidents um, but he was arguably the fastest driver of this era and but this has been a topic before, not just on our this this we're making at the minute about drivers lists that you've done before, which is that line between being really quick and making lots of mistakes to oh actually they're not going to live a long time because they do live on the edge. Yes, yeah, I don't think yeah, I think he was yeah maybe taking too much. Well, the example one of his most famous races is the nineteen thirty six Eiffel Renin. At the Nurburgring, wet race. So Cracciola, Nuvolari, Rosemeyer goes after them, gets into the lead. Cracciola's car breaks down. Nuvolari and Rosemeyer fight for the lead, and then fog descends, and oh, you can't great. can't see anything. And Rosemeyer just disappeared. Rosemeyer just disappeared. One of the contemporary magazines at the point said he must have been smelling his way through the fog. Oh my! Uh, so he got kind of christened as like the Fogmeister, whatever that is in German. Fogenmeister, oh. I suspect. <laughs> let's go. Let's go with that. Apologies to all German, <laughs> all German listeners. Um, wow! So just an incredible, and and actually, he, I think he'd, yeah, he didn't crash that often as as time went by. So I think maybe he must have started to learn his own limits. But he was always, yeah, there was he'd be sideways. 
which perhaps he had to be with the Austro Unions because they oversteered. So he perhaps he had to he had to lean into it to make it work. But mm. he dominated the 1936 season. He was the European champion. Um, he was the only Austro Union driver to become a European champion. Uh, and even up against the W125 Mercedes, the following season, he still managed to pull out some some wins. Uh, he won the Eiffel Rennen again, Copper Echerbo, Vanderbilt Cup in America, and the Donington Grand Prix. Yep. So he's famous from a British angle when the, their first taste of Grand Prix racing for a decade and mm. wowed many, many fans, uh, and he won that day. So uh, absolute star. Uh, and the reason he's not high on this list is, sadly, again, because he was killed in the uh, in his record run. Uh, caught by a gust of wind that threw the car into a, a non-survival accident. Well, certainly not not yeah. certainly non-survival. Then I mean they were doing. I think those cars could do 250 miles an hour. They were record oh. cars. Um, so you'd be doing well to survive a 250 mile an hour crash now. Uh, never mind in a <laughs> yeah, no. in a pre-war monster. So um, and one of the reasons the other the other reason he's high on this list is is in Caracciola's book. Uh, you can tell the sort of respect and admiration he right, has for okay. Rosemeyer. Uh, there are two drivers that, that Crouchyola picks out um, that repeatedly, I would say, during the book, and what one of them will get to your, in a moment, and Rosemeyer's the other. And you think he's managed mm. to do that in such a short space of time. So he won a third. He won basically a third of all the Grand Prix he ever started. He only ever raced Grand Prix machinery. Yeah. Uh, so you couldn't give him a versatility score. Um, but that's but what, he did. what an incredible yeah. impact! Uh, you know, Chris Chris Nixon, a, a famous uh, author, you know, described him as a racing driver of genius. Mm. Um, so I think uh, I think yeah, he was he was he was a phenomenon really. And really interesting that both the drivers and the teams of this era, with Daimler Benz, in terms of that mix of politics and sport coming together with the rise of the Nazi Party, it's 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 a history that even modern automotive struggles with but there's no point trying to not pretend that link wasn't there with car you know like Porsche and the the Beetle and things like that and he was somebody else who was used by politics to to engage the people as a sporting hero yeah that's very much so um uh, what's quite interesting actually is is obviously you're only taking it's difficult to piece it together from their own accounts because they mm. might be trying to sp- a lot of these <laughs> things Caracciolo's autobiography for example came out in the 50s right so it, with hindsight, you know, so he's not a fan of Hitler in it. Yeah. But you, but you probably wouldn't be if you were. But, <laughs> but I do think the, the general feeling that we get from the racing drivers is that they don't, that most of them, they're not, let's put it this way, they're not keen Nazis. Yeah. Uh, that's, and some of them disassociate themselves more than others. So, was, uh, you know, Caracciola didn't live in Germany. He stayed away and he helped get mm. Louis Chiron out of where he didn't need to be when war broke yeah. out and all that sort of stuff. So the, I think the, the drivers saw it as we are racing drivers, we're a community and we're friends and they ruled French, Italian and German largely. Mm. So they didn't really want to get involved in the politics, but, but quite obviously they all benefited from that yep. because Auto Union and Mercedes did receive uh, you know, funding from the Nazis. Although funnily enough, there's a suggestion that Mercedes put more money in to that project than even the Nazis did. It was like, you can have some. And then also you went, well, we want some. Yeah. Uh, so they split it. And then Mercedes went, well, we're going to throw more split money at it. So in. I don't think it was a f- just Nazi funding, yeah. let's put it that way. But I'm not trying to be an apologist or anything like that. Obviously, there's a mm. horrible, complicated propaganda stuff going on. But uh, 
I, yeah, I don't. Th- my impression I get from the drivers is they're not proactively involved in any of that, yeah. or as little as they can be, anyway. Just a fascinating meeting of politics and sports, you know, yes. and 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 public opinion and things like that, and you know, and propaganda and all those things that that feed in. It's it's just an interesting thing to talk it, about. It, it, so. it is, and I think that it really annoys when people say, "Oh, politics and sports should be separate." No, whether you, whether you think that they should be or not, that it's just intrinsic. I mean, you could say politics is involved in everything we do in every mm. facet of life because that's what it is. Mm. But I think. I always say the 1930s, the Berlin Olympics and Mercedes-Benz and all Grand Prix teams. If you didn't, <laughs> from that moment, you can't have held that position anymore. But I'm sure actually there have been other examples of, yeah. of, of, of sport and politics mixing long before that. But they're obviously my frames of reference. Absolutely. Right, here we go. Top two then. Number two. I really wanted to put him number one. Go really on. did. Why not though? Come on. So number two is Rudolf Caracciola. He, he's, the, he's the person I'd want on my team. Very, very safe, very smooth pair of hands, perfect technician, not the fastest, very rarely did fastest lap in practice all the races, but okay. just knew time after time he knew what to do, knew when to turn it on. He had the pace when he needed it, fantastic in the wet, um, uh, and, and quite clever as well. There's one race uh, where he allowed, uh, allowed Vasi to go past him to chase off after... No, sorry, he allowed Nuvolari's Alfa Romeo Bimatori through to battle uh, Vartz's Auto Union, knowing that the tyres were getting used up. And they, obviously, you know, two Italians in different manufacturers, they went absolutely hell for leather. Both of them fried their tyres and Caracciola cruised past to win the race. That that kind of clever, savvy stuff. Yeah. And I think what's particularly remarkable about him is that he his biggest successes come after he's basically got a permanent limp he had an enormous crash at monaco 1933 different accounts on whether that was driver error or a car problem so i won't sort of feed that into it so yeah that put him that put him out for many many months his first wife was killed in a skiing accident at the same time so he was really you know he was really rock bottom uh and he sort of he pulled himself out alfred neubauer who's a friend as well as the mercedes boss really supported him and gave him time to come back and sort of towards the end of 34 started showing signs of his old self because he compared mm. very well to Nuvolari when he was in an Alpha in 1932. So he was absolutely one of the top drivers. Um, when he, and when he was back up to speed in 1935, it was a great driver in the best car mm. and he smashed everyone in 1935 by and large. Uh, won most of the major Grand Prix, took his first European title, had to play second fiddle to Rosemary in 36, but then was European champion again in 37 and 38. He still holds the record for the most number of German Grand Prix victories. He won it six times. Yep. Uh, and he won the Arthur Ring, I think, four times. And most of those races were on the old Nürburgring. So, you know, the greatest wow. racetrack in the world. He's 936 Monaco winning the wet. You know, the, that was probably the worst conditions that race had until 1972 or 1984. And obviously in 84, it was called off. Uh, and he won by two minutes in a car that basically was pretty hopeless the rest of the year. So absolutely, you know, top, top-notch top driver. Uh, very rarely crashed, rated by his peers. One of the accounts I read was Richard Seaman talking about him kind of sort of slightly chillingly only a few months before Seaman himself was killed at Spa and saying that, you know, he thought that, uh, you know, although Nuvolari and Rosemeyer might be faster, mm. Caracciola was perhaps technically the most perfect driver he'd seen and wow. very rarely has the car. Out. In fact, he modelled his driving on Caracciola. 
to be neat and tidy. And you with these cars, when they had we said, we said in the cars one, when you've got six hundred fifty brake horsepower and tires not much wider than a than a mm. bicycle, you need to look after the tires and the brakes, and you need to be mm. sensible and not just go hooning around all the time. Uh, and he just did that balance. Wow. Yeah, we talk about Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton knowing how to adjust the pace of the tire degradation versus mm. how quickly you can go. He had the nineteen thirties equivalent of that, I think. Wow. Okay. Well then. Who is your number one driver? Listeners can probably guess, but who is so, the number one? Yeah, so number one is Tatsio Nuvolari. And I, I did kind of want to put Cracciola first. Uh, he also won more major races, by the way, Cracciola. He, he, he tops the list uh, in major races between 34 and 39. He, he took 17 wins, Rosemeyer on 10, Nuvolari on 8. But I think Nuvolari is your... Ah, he's more like your Sterling Moss, Fernando Alonso, pulling a ridiculous result out of the bag when he didn't have the best car. Yep. So <clears throat> when he does get the best car in 1932, he's the guy to beat. Alfa Romeo, he's the lead driver. Falls out with Enzo Ferrari, as top drivers quite often did in 1933. Yeah. Leaves, immediately starts winning for Maserati. Yeah. Uh, Ferrari getting back. Vasi blocks him going to Auto Union. So that's says something, doesn't it? He has in his contract. See, there's nothing new. Drivers wow. blocking other drivers. <laughs> uh, and he's then, yeah, so he's then shooting against, you know, he's, at times, he's, he's ranged against nine auto unions and Mercedes. Uh, and he's off, he's, he's most regularly a thorn in their side. Caracciola even says in his book, uh, there are points where he's, account, he's going through a race and he says, and that incredible Nuvolari is somehow with us. You know, even he's acknowledging that really, Nuvolari shouldn't be in the fight. So mm. I think he did have his moment where he probably didn't judge the race in the way that Cracciola did. Mm. So there are, there's a story of him at, at Avis uh, frying the tyres in two laps because he just couldn't rein it in. Right. So there's a twin engine now from AO, ridiculous car. Uh, and he just couldn't rein himself in. He wanted to go after the Mercs and auto unions and he fried the tyres and that was it. But I think it's that same relentlessness and, and uh, sort of just not prepared to accept defeat about him mm. that meant he could put off the miracle. So 1935 German Grand Prix is his most famous race. You know, coming back through after a long pit stop, uh, you know, against all the great drivers that were there, Fagioli, Rosemeyer, Cracciola, Stuck, went off after Von Brauchitsch, closing the gap, and then Von Brauchitsch, you know, he, he needed a tie stop, but he knew he'd lose to Nuvolari if he stopped, so he stayed out and the tie went on the last lap. Nuvolari came through to win. Yep. And the, the, the German organisers were so shocked they didn't even have the Italian national anthem to hand. Uh, <laughs> so that's his most famous win, but actually there are there were plenty of yeah, there were there were plenty of other races um that he that he pulled off of miracles, either getting on the podium or or hungry in nineteen thirty six he managed to beat them. Then he switched to Auto Union at last. Um, we're still getting up to speed when Rosemar was killed. So we'd never got to see the... I say we never got to see. I can't now read about what would yeah. have happened had Rosemar and uh, Nuvolari gone up against each other in the same car. That would have been fascinating. But Nuvolari almost picks up the, the you know the baton after Rosemar's killed, leads the auto union team, become you know yeah, becomes a front runner for them, wins wins a couple of races in 38, also a winner in 39. And rather appropriately wins the very last Grand Prix before the outbreak. Well, actually, the outbreak of the Second World War had happened two days before when the uh, the teams went to this Yugoslavian Grand Prix. So Nuvolari, quite fittingly, I think, given that he tops this list, wins the very last Grand Prix of the era that we're looking at. Wow, of course. And that wraps up the pre-war era. And as you say, you can go on the data and you can you can look at the stats, but then... Not only reading his his 
peers who have written about him and said other things about him. But those moments like going to Germany, going to the Nürburgring, beating the, all the German cars on their home soil. It's kind of, I guess, moments like that 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 can put on your top 10 lists, can put a car, a driver, what an achievement, just that little bit extra ahead because they have those moments of just brilliance. Yeah, I mean, the greatest drivers, yeah, when you reel them off, they can, they've all won at least one race, but probably more than that, in machinery or in circumstances where they shouldn't have done or where yeah. other people wouldn't have done. And, and Nuvolari has. Well, Enzo Ferrari picked Nuvolari and Moss as the greatest drivers that he'd seen. And and Enzo and bear in mind that they didn't even get on all the time. Yeah. Uh, Enzo Fry had seen quite a few drivers over the years, um, so you know I think that, that probably carries carries some weight. I mean, he even he was almost won the Media Emilia after the war in a in a eleven hundred cc car. So just just one of those people that could perform perform miracles. Um, uh, so I think that if you like, Caraccioli kind of is the is the mm. kind of overall rounded driver. But Nuvolari is the one that you'd look to to perhaps produce something special on the day. And post-war, did he continue to race? And and, and how did we lose him? Well, he he was eventually poisoned by all the exhaust fumes oh. that he. So he he had various health issues. He was a very unwell man in the last few years of his uh, of his life, unfortunately. Uh, although he did, so he ended up dying in bed, which he never expected to do. He was fully expecting that he would uh, would die in sport. Doing the thing he I loved mean, doing. there was before he even stopped racing uh, bikes. You know, he had an enormous crash. He was in. Uh, they was going to be put in plaster cast. They said, "Oh, you've got to be out for however long." And he went, well, "I've got a race this weekend." <laughs> well, you can't do that. Well, no. Put me. Had himself uh, the cast put on in such a way that it was the angle that he could be on the bike, not to stand up or sit down, so that he could be on the bike. So he was yeah. basically carried to the bike to much amusement for the race. And the story does indeed finish with him winning the race. So just one of those remarkable... I mean, he had a lot of crashes, a lot, but it didn't sort of let him stop it, stop him. Yeah. Uh, and he did come back after the war, but he didn't do he didn't do Grand Prix racing. He was sort of a bit too old and, and, mm. and ill, really. But yeah, he had that one last great drive at the Media Media where he very nearly won in an 1100cc Cisitalia, I think it was. Wow. Well, there we go. That's our that's our list. It's your list. And uh, certainly, I think for many of our listeners who some of this will be interesting new information to they might choose to then i don't know you, there's lots of stuff online there's books there's things that you can have a little read in your spare time and and looking at these pre-war grand prix heroes absolutely oh, well i would recommend any of the books by george monkhouse uh they're very accessible uh, most of them aren't a total fortune and he actually hung out with the uh, mercedes team in the late 30s rudolf caracciola's autobiography as i mentioned uh, there's also some quite good stuff online. Um, I, I was a big one of my uh, things as a kid was to watch Horizon did two Grand Prix based programs in the mid 80s, uh, and the first one was on Grand Prix racing between 1924 and 1939, and that's fascinating. It's got some interviews with people like Rudolf Ullenhout, so I'd recommend uh, digging those out as well if you can. But yeah, there is there is stuff out there, but you need to work a little bit harder perhaps than you do with some of the more recent stuff. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you so much. You can always um, email us. Our address is podcast at autosport.com. 
And you could just do kevin.turner at autosport.com. It's not hard to guess our email addresses. I mean, no. And you're always welcome to email. And actually, thank you to those that encouraged me to do this. I, I, it was something that I kind of thought, well, I'd quite like to do it, but surely no one will care. Uh, and it will take, I can't justify the time. But I mean, thank you to, to, mm. to the listeners that emailed in. And um, that means we've done a couple of articles online, a couple of articles in the magazine, and now we've done a couple of podcasts. So hopefully we've got our manager out of it, Martin. I think so. Hey, thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you on the next one. Sports Social Podcast Network.